Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome. And it's our pleasure to uh, have a learning program today. Jerisha in conjunction with Lincoln Square Synagogue. I just want to say a couple of words before I uh, briefly introduce our first uh, teacher, Professor Reinhold. Uh, the topic of religion, in the case of Jewish religion, religion and I would say halakha and ethics is a very central topic and, and issue always. And I think it's a, uh, particularly appropriate that this takes place on Hanukkah because Hanukkah on one hand is the celebration of the sovereignty of the Jewish people, Hashbanaim, who defeated the, uh, the Greek Syrians and also the assimilationist Jews who supported them. So from one perspective, it's about sovereignty, one might say kingship in the Bible. And from the other perspective, it's about the temple. The mitzvah of Hanukkah, of course, central mitzvah, there are two. One is the recitation of the Hallel, and the other is the lighting of the candles, which are recalling the menorah of the temple, the purifying of the temple, so in Hanukkah, we have two things that come together. We have the sovereignty, one might say kingship, sovereignty, power. And uh, on the other hand, we have the sacred. And the, in, the, in our uh, Tanakh, one of the two roles of the king, maybe the primary role of the king, is to do justice. Shvatanu Malkeno. King David is described in chapter 8 of Shmuel as Ose Mishpat Utztaka Lecholamo, Mishpat Utzedaka. So how does Mishpat and Tzedaka relate to the sacred? And the truth of the matter is this question, uh, we encountered the question prior to Hanukkah. We encountered the question in Sefer Breshit, because Abraham on one hand is reported by God as doing Tzedaka uh, or Mishpat, and teaching his descendants to tzedakah or mishpat. And he says to God, when he argues with God, aren't you the ethical God? You do the right thing. And a few chapters later, we have the story of the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, and the discovery of the sacred space. And the Akedah raises all kinds of questions about ethics, about human behavior, in conjunction with God's imperative. So this is a question that's been around for a long time. And in every generation, questions are raised about Jewish tradition and practice. Is it in consonance with the ethical? Is it the right thing or not the right thing? So we thought that today on Hanukkah would be a, important to bring in some uh, teachers who will address different facets of this issue. So Professor Reinhold and Sarah Zager and Rabbi Zukia and Shomo Zukia will be our teachers today. So uh, looking forward to a uh, a day in which hopefully gets us to think a lot more about this very central question. Thank you all for attending. Thank you for, uh, to Lincoln Square Synagogue for being our co-host. Did want to say one word about Drisha and the programs that we run uh, over the course of the year. We used to be in a space uh, just a few blocks from here, a very beautiful space actually. And we, we, we left that space. We left the space because we wanted to re redeploy our assets and to do more teaching and bring more Torah. We continue to do that in New York City. In the summer, we 
rent buildings at New York University. We run our high school program for girls and we run our co collegiate and graduate program there. During the year, we have partnered with synagogues. And we also have started programs in Israel, Yeshiva for Women in Israel, other programs as well. And we have also online learning now, we're building that as well. So we're doing the programming. Unfortunately, we made the right decision to leave the space. But uh, in any event, so I invite all of you to uh, follow us, in information, of course, on the internet and to participate in as many programs as you feel will be useful to you, helpful in getting us all to think more about important issues and to study our classic texts. So thank you very much. I did want to introduce Professor Reinhold very briefly. Professor Reinhold is a professor at Yeshiva University. He uh, teaches both general philosophy and Jewish philosophy. Uh, we had the pleasure last year of having uh, Professor Reinhold do some teaching for Drisha on the philosophy of Rabbi Soloveitchik. His, most of his work is, a good deal of his work is in Jewish philosophy, Jewish medieval philosophy. So uh, Dr. Reinhold, thank you for coming this morning and teaching for us. Here's Dr. Reinhold, thank you. Uh, good morning and uh, happy Hanukkah. Um, it's interesting, actually, the ethical dilemma immediately uh, as, as I walked in uh, with the hot drinks because they've got uh, kind of proper tea there, right? Black tea and coffee. Um, and uh, when faced with that choice, uh, you should always choose coffee because as the much, you know, underquoted Jewish philosopher Marx once said, property is theft. So moving on, come on, keep up. All right. Um, so uh, take some time. All right. Um, what we are going to um, deal with today, I actually, I, I should just say I'll set this up because uh, we have till 12. Um, and so, you know, it's a long session. And, uh, uh, you know, after about 10, 15 minutes, the accent loses its sheen. So uh, to keep you here just listening to me for two hours is, uh, you know, going to be quite difficult. So what we're going to do is I'm going to set up a problem, a challenge, um, and then I'm going to leave you to discuss with your colleagues around your tables um, and go through some of the, the, the texts, um, whether kind of, you know, in groups or, or however you wish to, to split your tables, uh, to look at, you know, a response or certain responses to this question, uh, probably for about half hour or so. And then we'll come back together for the final, you know, hour approximately, uh, where I'll give you a view on some of these matters and a response uh, or responses to our challenge. Okay, so that's how we're going to set it up. I'm going to set up a challenge. You will then um, you know, look at various texts that are relevant to the challenge, uh, and then we'll come back together and hopefully um, do something of interest um, in responding to it, okay? Um, and to set up the challenge, what I want to set up here is a challenge to the very idea that as a Jew, you ought to be ethical. Right? The title here is, Is It Wrong to Be Ethical? 
right? Which is very strange. How can it possibly be wrong to be ethical? Um, so I want to explain that question, right? Set out that challenge to you um, and tell you why on earth anybody could possibly think it would be wrong to be ethical, okay? Um, and to do so, we're going to look at the work of Immanuel Kant, okay? So very briefly, the work of the great modern philosopher Immanuel Kant um, and his particular challenge that raises this question, all right? Um, and just to begin with, that obviously, there are always going to be challenges and conflicts between a religious worldview and some other worldview, right? I mean, that other worldview could be another religious worldview, even, right? Um, but certainly a kind of a, a secular ethic and a religious ethic, there might well be conflicts between them, right? Um, that's not our question. That's not our problem, okay? Um, I guess in medieval times, that kind of might have been the question, right? If you have a truth in Judaism and the world around you is telling you that that's actually not the case and the truth is something else, what do you do? Okay? And that's, you know, that's a classic, in some sense, that's the very beginnings of Jewish philosophy, right? Jewish philosophy begins from the recognition suddenly that there is another worldview out there that is rational, that seems to make sense to us, that the Torah seems to contradict it in some way, or Judaism seems to contradict it in some way, and if only one thing can be the truth, what do you do? Okay, but that's very much kind of a localized problem or localized problems, right? I say A, they say B, which is right, okay? The modern challenge is very different. The modern Kantian challenge is very different from that, because it potentially um, rules out in principle the very possibility of religious ethics okay and to set this up I want to try and explain that by dipping in a little bit to um, a couple of quotes from Kant okay uh, so Immanuel Kant groundwork of metaphysics of morals hopefully everybody's got a handout um, there's a bunch of them um, it's not as much as it looks because um, Many of them are in Hebrew and in English translations, so kind of you've got maybe only half the amount of actual texts. Let's begin then, all right? Kant, trying to analyze, right, the nature of morality and trying to talk about the nature of good action. What's a good act, all right? Moral philosophy is, you know, in the uh, business of studying, you know, you know, which acts are good, which acts are bad, and mainly what makes them so, right? And in Kant, when he's thinking about what makes an act a good act or a bad act, he says the following, all right? So the first quote that you've got here on the handout, um, where he says, an action done from duty has its moral worth, not in the purpose to be attained by it, but in the maxim according with which it is decided upon. All right, so obviously, you know, an act might be correct because it leads to a good outcome, right? Because of kind of the, the thing that actually occurs as a result, or it might be good in accordance with, and he uses here the term the maxim, okay? Um, but if you just think about, you know, your intention, right? Your motivation, all right? Why are you doing the action? What's behind it for you? Um, what's driving you to do this? Um, it depends, therefore, not on the realization of the object of the action, but solely on the principle of volition, volition will, in accordance with which, irrespective 
of all objects of the faculty of desire, the action has been performed, right? Meaning what? And he gives here a famous example. Um, imagine that you wish to give a donation to charity, right? And, you know, you really want to do that. And thank God you have the wherewithal to do so because you are wealthy, right? And then imagine that you have an identical motivation, right? I want to give charity, right? And yet you're very poor, maybe even homeless, so you can't, right? Now Kant's point here is why should, as he puts it, the niggardly provision of nature, right? The fact that this poor person has been, you know, so placed that they're unable to fulfill the act they wish to do, why should that be any part of our judgment of her worth as a person, right? Of her goodness or otherwise, just because she's not in the position circumstantially to make good on what it was she wanted to do, okay? So point being, what is it that kind of you can say unqualifiedly is good, a goodwill, right? What's kind of internal, the motivation? And it's the motivation really that for Kant, therefore, is the locus of value, right? A good act is a good act because I want to do this thing. Sometimes I can't. But as he says there, right, the principle of volition, the, the desire to do that, right? The, the fact that I want to do that, irrespective of, right, all objects, fact, desire, um, and whether the action has been performed, right, that's what makes you a good person, or not, as the case may be. Okay, very straightforward, right, a very kind of simple idea. Um, and actually kind of intuitively, right, has some appeal, right? The idea that whether I'm a good person or not, whether my, I have kind of performed a good act or not, might have more to do with the intent and motivation than the um, result of the action. It's not to say the result of the action can be you know, bad, right? We can say kind of whatever happened was a bad thing. Whether the person doing it did a bad thing is a separate question, right? So the intent, the motivation, very important. That's his starting point, okay? Um, the question then arises as to, okay, kind of well and good, what is the correct motivation, right? So we're now focused on motivation, right? Or we're focused at very least on the principle, right? That you are using in order to act. Right? On what principle are you basing your act? And of course, there are lots of different possibilities there. Right? So which one is the good one? Right? What kind of principle of volition, as he puts it, um, would define you as a good person? Right? Obviously, you can have good or bad maxims, as he puts it. Right? So he goes on, have a look at number two, where Kant writes, it certainly accords with duty that a grocer should not overcharge his inexperienced customer. And where there is much competition, a sensible shopkeeper refrains from so doing and keeps to a fixed and general price for everybody. So that a child can buy from him just as well as anyone else. Thus people are served honestly. But this is not nearly enough to justify us in believing the shopkeeper has acted in this way from duty or from principles of fair dealing. His interest required him to do so. Right, so what's his example here? The honest shopkeeper, right? Now, question is, why is the shopkeeper being honest, right? And on the one hand, as he says, 
right? Well, there's a lot of competition, right? So I'm going to be honest because if I get a bad reputation for not being honest, then people won't come to me and everybody should be able to come to me whether they know me or they don't know me, right? And they know I'm honest. And the problem for Kant is that's not being moral, okay? That's not acting out of a sense of duty. That's acting out of a sense of self-interest, right? The reason I'm being honest is so I'll get more business, right? That's not moral, right, for Kant. For Kant, that maxim, right, the principle upon which I act must be for the sake of, as he puts it here, duty, right? The word is duty, right? And duty is not about self-interest. Therefore, if the reason he's acting is I'll get more business because it's, you know, I should be honest so that people don't think of me as unfair, then he's not actually doing a moral act. Okay. So when Kant tries to define in some way what it is, what is this principle that determines your duty, one of the things he's kind of most famous for, um, and again, put it very simply and kind of broadly, is you're not acting for any ulterior motive. Right? You are doing something for the sake of duty and for the sake of duty alone. Right? To act morally is to act for the sake of duty, not because you want to you know, do well, not because you want people to like you, and of course, therefore, not because God told you to. Right? If God told you to, if I'm doing something because God told me to, I'm not being moral. Right? I act to be moral is to do it out of a sense of duty, not because God told me to, right? And therein lies the problem, right? The problem is that Kant is in effect making it in principle, in principle, impossible for there to be such a thing as a religious, uh, sorry, a moral mitzvah. If it's a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah, fine. It's the command of God and I do it. But if I'm acting morally, then that can't be in any way part of the picture. I have to do it because it's my duty, right? not because God told me to, because I'm acting for an ulterior motive. Okay, right? This is the kind of the Kantian challenge. And it's not to do, you know, this is purely for him, by the way, when he goes on and we will just briefly have a look at number three. Right, because so far I've been talking very, you know, um, loosely about acting for the sake of duty, right? And in acting for the sake of duty, so far all we've really said is what it's not, right? It's not acting for this reason, for that reason, that is for duty. But what is? How do I work out what my duties are then, right? What is this maxim, this moral maxim, this duty? How do we find it? And he has various different ways of couching it. This is the most famous, right? So have a look at number three. Um, as he says, since I have robbed the will of every inducement that might arise for it as a consequence of obeying any particular law, right? As we just said, he's ruled out any reason for doing it that kind of, you know, achieves any kind of purpose, right? There's no inducement. So how are we to understand how to define or work out our duty? He goes on. Nothing is left but the conformity of actions to universal law as such, and this alone must serve the will as its principle. That is to say, 
I ought never to act except in such a way that I can also will that my maxim should become a universal law. Okay? The test, the test of what is moral, right? The test of what acts are moral is, is the maxim upon which you have acted something that you could will could become universal law. And what's important here, and kind of the genius of Kant um, here, whether he's right or wrong, right? But the genius is he's trying here to give us a moral, um, I hesitate to say system, right? But he, he's trying to give us, right, a rational account of morality that doesn't depend in any way on content, right? Content's always going to be controversial, right? I think that, you know, there should be, oh, I, that's, um, for example, could there be um, a, a, a right to abortion, kind of in all in any cases, because a woman's rights over her own body, etc. versus I believe that shouldn't because you're murdering, right? Okay, well, those are two different contents, right? And people are going to argue for those contents from completely different premises. And the idea that you might be able to find some neutral point on which they both agree and one group says, ah, oh, you're right, sorry, I was wrong. Right? Difficult. Right? You have these intractable problems. So, you know, where do we get our moral ideals and principles from? So Kant says, yeah, don't, don't worry about content. This is completely formal, totally formal. Right? There is a formal test here. And the formal test is the thing that you are deciding to do, could you will it to be universal? With universality here being the test, I guess, of rationality, right? So it's rational if every thinking human being, if they were thinking correctly, would agree to it, right? So his example that he gives to flesh this out a little bit, does a lying promise accord with duty? Right, so I make a promise and I don't mean to keep it. Okay. How could you, for, on purely formal basis, not saying because lying is wrong, right? Because as we said, we don't want content here. We want to generate from the ground up, from completely and utterly neutral, rational foundations. Right? How can you rule that out? And he says the following. I have then to ask myself, should I really be content that my maxim, the maxim of getting out of a difficulty by a false promise, should hold as a universal law, one valid for both myself and others. Right, so the test, remember, the test is, can I will it as universal law? So I'm gonna make a false promise, can I will that as universal law? And he says, I then become aware at once that I can indeed will to lie, but I can by no means will a universal law of lying. For by such a law, there could properly be no promises at all since it would be futile to profess a will for future action to others who would not believe my profession or who, if they did so over hastily, would pay me back in like coin. Consequently, my maxim, as soon as it was made a universal law, would be bound to annul itself. Now, you know, I'm not going to get into Kantian scholarship here, right? There are many different versions of exactly what he means by this, right? I'll give you one. It, you know, whether it's the correct one is up for grabs, but the point here would be, I promise to do X and then I'm not going to keep it, right? Can I will that universally, right? So it is a universal law that everybody can break their promises whenever it suits them, right? Says he, if that were to be, 
you couldn't even make the promise in the first place because the whole institution of promising would never have got off the ground, right? If promises were things that were ultimately meaningless because you can break them whenever it suits you, then the whole institution of promising would never have started. Thus, if you say, I want to make a false promise, universalize it, you couldn't even make the statement. You'd, it would be a contradictory statement even, right? I promise that, well, what's the promise, right? Promise has just collapsed. The whole idea of promising has collapsed. Therefore, you could not will it as a universal, right? Maxim, okay? And this isn't kind of practically about whether people do it, whether people will not do it kind of the promising thing. This is just about whether we can envisage a world. Does the, a world in which there is an institution of promising that everybody breaks whenever it's convenient to them. Does that world make sense? Could there be such a world? And Kant is arguing not, right? Therefore, he believes that you can generate duty out of purely formal considerations, right? Can I universalize it or can I not universalize it? If I can't, then it's not moral. Okay. Now that, again, whether he's precisely correct in exactly the way he formulates this or not, right? The challenge is, can there be such a thing, right? If we, like Kant, agree that motivation, the internal principle upon which you act, defines morality, right? And in the modern age, that's certainly a very, very influential idea, right? I don't know how you do it here, right? But, you know, um, in the UK, right, where you have the government whips who are meant to, you know, make sure that the Conservatives vote Conservative and Labour vote Labour, right? There are certain votes where that doesn't um, happen because it's a moral question. And a moral question is a matter of personal conscience, right? It has to be that I'm voting because, you know, it's my personal moral motivation, right? Kind of also kind of a Mendelssohnian faith thing as well, I guess, in a sense, right? Faith is mean meaningless if you kind of gun to your head, right? Faith is only meaningful as a voluntary commitment, right? I'm only really religious if I actually do this because I believe it. If I'm doing it because, uh, you know, somebody's forced me to, I'm doing it for all kinds of other reasons. Yeah, it's not really faith, yeah? So, that's the challenge. Is it possible, is it possible to be a religious person who acts ethically? And I don't mean by that, is it possible for a religious person to do acts that are generally categorized as moral, right? Of course it is, right? We do it all the time, right? Hopefully, <laughs> right? The question is, when I'm doing that act, am I actually being moral? Should I be moral even? Should I be, right? Or should I actually not be moral? Is it wrong to be an ethical person? Because what I should be doing is serving God, not being ethical, right? That's the challenge, all right? And what you have now before you um, are a bunch of texts, uh, quite a lot of them. Um, so I'm gonna give you about half an hour, all right? Uh, and I'll just, just let me mention, there are two um, kind of, you know, rabbinic text, so to speak, all right, very briefly. Um, the reason for that is, uh, as Rabbi Silver mentioned, I'm a professor of philosophy, right? So kind of philosophy is, is what I do 
more importantly, what I what I I know, right? Or at least I know a bit. <laughs> I wouldn't make that claim about kind of the, say you know the world of rabbinics, all right? I mean, obviously, yeah, I know it in as much as we all know it, and as much as we studied it and went to yeshiva, blah blah blah. But you know, I wouldn't claim to be a scholarly expert. Uh, therefore. I've thrown a couple of interesting texts in there, but the bulk of what we're doing is what philosophers, Jewish philosophers have said about this. Um, all, the other reason for that is as soon as you start doing certainly any medieval Jewish philosophy, you realize that you can pretty much make the text say anything. So um, you might as well just go straight to the philosophers themselves. Um, and so you've got two of those, right? I then have a bunch of selections from uh, the famous, maybe infamous, um, uh, modern Israeli thinker, Yeshua Leibovitz. Um, two selections from him in the original Hebrew and in the English. Um, and then, under number three, uh, the Rambam, some texts from the Mishnah Torah. Um, and I would be shocked if you get any further than that. You might not even get there, right? But if you just look at and discuss the two rabbinic tests and Leibovitz, right, that will more than suffice, obviously if you kind of, oh yeah, Leibovitz did that yesterday. Um, so you can go straight through, then by all means, just keep going, right? But I think that let's give it till uh, conveniently, more or less, let's kind of reconvene at 11, right? Um, see what you can get through discussing the text and obviously as they bear on our question, all right? Okay, what do these texts have to say in response to the question of whether it is possible, right? to be a religious ethical person? Or are you going to ultimately have to be one or the other? All right, um, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll circulate round and um, I'm happy to, to talk through, but take it away. All right. Shall we begin? So um, we have our question. Is it wrong to be ethical? And I guess to begin with, let's just uh, start, let me ask you uh, what you make of the first text from the Sifra. Um, what is it? contribute to this question do you think it pushes us in one direction or the other anybody want to um comment anybody want to say what they took from that first one that was um relates to the question in some way any volunteer to speak up for their group table self yeah we have somebody over there Okay, Shall I, you know what, I'll bring you the mic, and then everybody can hear you. Well, just I was surprised that they, they talk about your motivations at all. Uh, that uh, they actually care, they, it's not just what you do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the same uh, uh, motivations what Khan was talking about, but I was surprised that they weren't just saying it's what you do, as opposed to, it depends why you're doing it. Okay, so the first one certainly does seem to care about motivation, and it's definitely, we're not going to find in any of the sources that I've given you a precise account of the motivation that's going to in any way uh, gel with Kant. Uh, and in a sense, really, the third text, the third Kantian text, 
was just there for exposition. It doesn't actually, it's not really germane to our question because our question is to do with, you know, what's your motivation, right? Is your motivation an ethical motivation? And then we'll define ethical how we will define it. Or is it, I'm doing it because it's a mitzvah. Now, how exactly you define the ethical obligation, right? Might not be uh, precisely the way that Kant does, but the very, um, I guess, clash that he sets up kind of just in principle, systematically, between either it's ethical because it is done out of a sense of ethical duty, right? Or it's religious. That's kind of the key problem. And, and as gentlemen just said, clearly the first text does seem to be concerned with motivation. And it's not just about what you do. Anybody else? Any, any other offers uh, to speak to that first text? Anybody want to add anything to that? So I would say that the first text doesn't seem to naturally lend itself to uh, reinforcing the problem for us. Because it does seem to be saying that if you're doing something, and you know, as it says, you know, I don't want to uh, wear shutness, right? I have no interest in, um, you know, having a bacon sandwich. Is actually not to be the way one ought to frame these things or act. What one should say is, I really want that, but I'm not doing it because God told me not to. Right? That's in terms of the evaluation here. He says, when's it, a man should not say. Right? You shouldn't say, I'm good with all these mitzvot. They're great. They speak to my internal motivations. They seem to instead be placing on a higher level somebody who doesn't want to act that way and does it just because God says so, which seems to reinforce our, our problem. Right? Can I, should I be ethical? Well, actually, you should probably want to not be ethical and then be ethical anyway because you were told to. And that way, you're doing a mitzvah. Right? Um, now, one of the texts we have here actually tries to read this rather differently. And if you just fast forward and go to the Maimonides text, Shmone Prakim, the top of the page says the sixth chapter. So this is the sixth chapter of his Shemone Prakim, which is his introduction to Mishnah Avot in his commentary to the Mishnah. You don't have it in Hebrew because it was written in Arabic. So I just gave you one translation, not both. And here, I suppose the first thing to mention is that Maimonides is clearly not working in any kind of Kantian framework, right? He is, um, far more given to an Aristotelian virtue ethic. But virtue ethics is significant in as much as, similarly, what's going on in here really matters. And that's exactly what he's discussing in this particular part of Shimon Prakim, where he talks about the difference between the virtuous man and the continent man. So a continent man will do the right thing, but will pretty much be like our character in the Sifra manages to do the right thing despite internally his passions maybe not being in order in terms of virtue. The virtuous man is doing it because he's virtuous and he wants to. 
But in dealing with that, it's very interesting the way that the Rambam reads this because he says the following. Let's have a look there. The philosopher said, even though the continent man performs virtuous actions, he does good things while craving and strongly desiring to perform bad actions, right? That's the continent man. The continent man does the right thing, but is, there's an inner battle going on. He has to overcome his desires and his passions in order to do the right thing. And the philosophers say that surely it is better to do it as a virtuous person and not battling some kind of, you know, Yetzirah. So, goes on. He struggles against his craving and opposes by his action what his appetitive power, his desire, and the state of his soul arouse him to do. He does good things while being troubled at doing them. The virtuous man, however, follows in his action what his desire and the state of his soul arouse him to do. And he does good things while craving and strongly desiring them. There is agreement among the philosophers. The virtuous man is better, more perfect than the continent man. And that seems to stand to reason. We would want somebody who is, for example, um, giving tzedakah to do it because they want to do it. Not to do it saying, I hate you, but I'm going to do it because God commands me to. Who's a better person? However, if we skip to the next paragraph, when we investigated the speech of the sages about this matter, we found that according to them, someone who craves and strongly desires transgressions is more virtuous and perfect than someone who does not crave them and suffers no pain in abstaining from them. Right? That's our text, the Sifra. Better if actually you're struggling against your Sahara. So there seems to be, this is an example of the kind of problem I began with in medieval times. There would be a clash maybe between a particular element of Greek thought, a particular element, well, Arabic Greek thought, and a particular element of uh, Jewish thought, and you'd have to try and render them compatible in some way, or show one of them is right and one of them is wrong. This is an example. And Maimonides here is troubled, because philosophically, it's not Kant, but philosophically, it remains the case that the reason for my action, or at least what's going on internally with my passions, should match what's going on externally with my actions, says the philosopher, and yet we have texts that seem to say the opposite, encouraging us effectively to not be ethical, but to do things because God told us to. However, the Rambam has a solution to this, let us um, go to the next paragraph. If the external meaning of the two accounts, philosopher and Jewish sages, is understood superficially, the two views contradict one another. However, that is not the case. Rather, both of them are true and there is no conflict between them at all. For the bad things to which the philosophers referred when they said someone who does not desire them is more virtuous than someone who does desire them and restrains himself, these are the things generally accepted by all the people as bad, such as murder, theft, robbery, fraud, harming an innocent man, repaying a benefactor with evil, degrading parents, things like this. They are the laws about which the sages, peace be upon them. If they were not written down, they would deserve to be written down, famous distinction between Mishpatim and Chutim in, in Yoma. If you go down to the following paragraph, when the sages said the continent man is more virtuous and his reward is greater, they had in mind the traditional laws. If you think about the examples, right, shutness, kashrut, 
It wasn't saying you're a better person if you really want to murder somebody, but you manage to conquer it. That's not what the Sifra say. Clearly, you're a much worse person. You're a better person if you don't want to murder people and you don't murder people. However, if you really fancy that cheeseburger and don't eat it, well, actually, then that is a mark of a higher religious type, says Maimonides reading the Sifra. So he actually does not see that first text as particularly pertinent to our problem, despite first appearances. It's saying when it comes to moral matters, you actually should be disposed to do those things and not just do them because God commanded you to. It's only in the area of those laws that we call, you know, whether you want to call them chukim or, you know, ritual laws, revealed laws, various different titles through the history of kind of philosophy for them. It's only those where conquering your natural passions is seen as a good thing. So if Maimonides is correct in his reading of that passage, then passage one doesn't actually yield our... Um, problem in terms of rendering somebody who doesn't want to be ethical a better person. Of course our problem to begin with was precisely to say that Judaism maybe does suggest that but then the first source we've looked at that maybe suggests that turns out not to. That's at least on Maimonides's reading. Is that clear? Do we all follow how that first text might suggest a reinforcement of the Kantian problem, but ultimately is solved if you follow Rambam's reading of it. Uh, the one problem, of course, is Erevah, illicit relations. Is that a ritual law? Is that something we don't naturally have a desire for? So maybe that is a problem for Maimonides' reading of this. Right, but we'll leave that aside to get our teeth into the key conceptual issues. I am going to, for the moment, skip the second Rambam text, the Mishnah Torah text. We will um, have some time to come back to it. But let's go to Leibovitz. Leibovitz is interesting because, on the one hand, formally, his view of Judaism seems very similar to Kant's view of ethics. However, as a result of this, it is Leibovitz precisely for whom it seems wrong to be ethical. At least religiously wrong to be ethical. That's quite important. I probably should have couched the title that way. It's not wrong to be ethical. Might just not be religiously right. Um, let us then have a look at what Leibovitz has to say. Um, and Leibovitz begins by in a way that looks quite similar to Kant. Right? Not identical, but similar talking about two types of religiosity. Um, uh, let's, uh, I guess let's just do the English uh, for the sake of time. Two types of religiosity may be discerned, says he. This is at the top of the third page on the handout, or if it's double-sided. Um, beginning of the second. Two types of religiosity may be dis discerned. One founded in values and beliefs from which follow requirements of action. The other posited on imperatives of action, the observance of which entails values and intention. 
The religion of values and beliefs is an endowing religion, a means of satisfying man's spiritual needs and assuaging his mental conflicts. Its end is man. God offers his services to man. A person committed to such a religion is a redeemed man. A religion of mitzvot is a demanding religion, imposes obligations, tasks, makes of man an instrument of the realization of an end which transcends man. The satisfactions of offers are those deriving from the performance of one's duty. Good old Kantian word. The religious practitioner serves his god Lishma because he's worthy of worship, kind of like the moral person who does what he does out of duty. That's not a typo, I just added that. Um, the two types of religiosity may be found within all religions, but religions differ from one another in the extent to which one type predominates. And effectively, he thinks Christianity is the religion founded in values, Judaism, religion founded on imperatives. Fine. Um, so what's this distinction that he's setting out then? Does anybody want to um, say what they got from Leibovitz's account? Anybody want to, to tell us what they thought from looking at it? No? The accent still holds its charm. Here we go. My friend Michael, it seems, uh, it seems to both of us that the, uh, the first uh, the first version is, is the Kantian version. Even though he mentions God, it's, it's really all about, it's, it's all focused on man. God is in the service of man. The second version is, is what the Rambam is saying. The second one is the Rambam. It's all about uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what we call religious goals. Uh, okay. But I guess we're here, so I'll, give, I'll go first there and I'll... I would suggest that the distinctions that the uh, is drawing between Judaism and Christianity of the religion is that Judaism is focused on the law, which applies to the entirety of society. This is how we hold its laws and obedience to the law, however they feel about those laws, that hold society together. And with respect to the other religions, They'd rather want you to uh, individually uh, subscribe to the values, the morals, if you will, of the laws without reference to the uh, uh, binding the entire society together in a peaceful and just way. Okay, and there was someone, I'm just going to go, I saw his hand and then I'll point you. It's really a question. I don't understand what you mean. In the religion of Mitzvah, we understand what we want to It's demanding an instrument for the realization of an end which transcends man. Mm -hmm. What is this end? Since it seems to be so formalistic, mm -hmm. so much about just doing this just because God commanded it. Yes. What is this transcendent, transcendent goal? Okay. We will deal with that hopefully. And one more. Okay. So I have a difficulty with this thing besides the fact that I have difficulty with. The whole Akeda, Barbara Mama, on the line. If anything, I would see it as learning not to sacrifice. That's that's me. But I would I would take more Judaism as um, as Abraham pleading. You know, why would you kill innocent people? Mm -hmm, with, mm -hmm. You know, murderers, and then having the courage to go and save vote. Right. And I would take the whole religion. I would say. Mm -hmm. This thing of Christianity, if they've been, they've killed so many other people, 
I wouldn't put them up there in terms of um, being a higher level or, you know, whatever he says, um, the sacrifice of God for, the, for mankind would sort of like contradict it. So that's my comment on it. All right, let's, um, let's first maybe set out in general what Leibovitz is saying, and I'll 